Welcome back to Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for episode 78, The Space Shuttle, Part 4. Yes, sir, reading you loud and clear. Clear, clear, clear. The clock has started. The clock has started. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, two, one, one. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Before we begin today, I have a correction to make. It's been a while since I've messed something up, but this was a big one. I must have had a long day before sitting down to record the last episode, and I must have been even more tired when I edited the audio because it wasn't until later that I realized I had mispronounced our protagonist's last name every single time I said it which is crazy because I really do know how it's pronounced. I now hope to write that wrong by not calling Krista McAuliffe Krista McAuliffe ever again. Okay, now that that's over with, last week we met Krista McAuliffe, a high school social studies teacher and mother of two living her dream life with her husband Steve in New Hampshire. After being talked into it and then procrastinating until the very last minute, she applied for NASA's Teacher in Space program in 1984 to become America's first private citizen to join the shuttle mission. Put an asterisk right there with the private citizen part. I'm going to come back to that point later. Of the more than 11,000 applicants, she became one of the 114 semifinalists to get an actual interview, and then beat the odds to become one of the 10 finalists sent to Houston for physical and psychological tests. The very last of these tests was a flight on NASA's infamous Vomit Comet, something the motion sickness-prone McAuliffe was dreading. She was quite certain that she would throw up on the Vomit Comet, which was not an earthbound simulator, but a modified Boeing Stratotanker that flew roller coaster parabolas over the Gulf of Mexico. During its steep dives, passengers experienced 30 seconds of weightlessness. When the plane climbed, they felt their body weight double until the comet reached its apex, dove once more, and started the cycle all over again. At a lunch with Bob Crippen, a veteran of four shuttle missions, commander of three, the astronaut nicknamed Mr. Shuttle, Krista confessed that she thought she was going to get sick and ruin her chances. He reassured her, saying, Lots of astronauts get sick their first time. Astronaut Judy Resnick, who was also there, corrected him. Only the men get sick. When the time came, the ten finalists boarded the large plane. Over the next two hours, the Stratotanker climbed and dived 27 times. During the weightless half minutes, the Boulder finalists unclipped their harnesses and floated between the padded walls. Some did slow-motion somersaults. Some hung upside down, tossing tennis balls and paper airplanes. 
They were delighted to discover that zero-G paper airplanes fly straight as an arrow. Krista joined the others long enough to form a gypsy moth ring in the middle of the cabin and then retreated to her harness. She reached for a levitating frisbee and then her stomach started to turn. She clamped her eyes shut and willed its contents to stay down. Finalist Kathleen Bears, the adventurous mountaineer I mentioned last week, squeezed Krista's hand and told her it was almost over. Biting her lip, Krista made it back to Earth without vomiting. The finalist from Vermont, a former Air Force pilot, couldn't say the same thing. Now that the vomit comet was behind them, NASA had a treat in store for the teachers. They traveled to the George C. Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, which also happens to be home to Space Camp, a kind of space-themed amusement park of sorts, which was only three years old when the finalists visited in 1985, where they got to ride the shuttle simulator. Then they got an even bigger treat, a picnic lunch with music legend John Denver, himself a pilot and self-proclaimed space nut, who had already applied for a future spot on a shuttle and promised to write a song about the teacher in space. After the picnic, they rode the spatial disorientation chair, which jerked and spun riders faster than a mechanical bull. Eight finalists rode the bucking chair without falling off. Afterwards, one staggered away to find a place to lay down. Only one got sick. Krista threw up into a space camp barf bag, then joined the others queuing up for the last ride, the Lunar Odyssey, which was similar to a carnival tilt-a-whirl centrifuge attraction. Spinning faster and faster, it pressed the riders against the wall with the force of three Gs. Lunar Odyssey also featured video screens showing liftoffs and spacewalks. We are about to escape Earth's gravity, the ride's narrator intoned. McAuliffe shut her eyes as the big wheel tilted and spun faster as the music grew louder. In the dark, the riders heard a thump. Stop it, someone shouted. Slow it down. There was a shriek and repeated thuds, then the lights flashed on. As the music stopped, someone was yelling, Call 911 and call an ambulance. Their NASA handlers thought that one of the teachers had been thrown off the ride. A quick headcount showed everyone accounted for, but Krista was calling for help, crouched beside a bleeding, still-breathing body. A recent graduate from Huntsville's Virgil Grissom High School, who had a daredevil streak and was working at the park, jumped onto the ride and wanted to impress the finalists. He had unhooked his harness, lost his balance, and a piece of the ride's machinery caught his arm or leg or clothing and flung him through a partition. He came to rest near McAuliffe's seat. Space camp workers rushed to help him, and an ambulance raced him to the hospital, where he later died. Several finalists watched Krista follow the handlers to the ride's exit, sobbing uncontrollably. That evening, the finalists left Huntsville with a pall hanging over the group.
On July 19, 1985, the finalists were assembled in the White House's Roosevelt Room to hear who would be named Teacher in Space. President Reagan, recovering from colon surgery, sent his regards and his vice president, George H.W. Bush, to the event. When it came time for the announcement, the VP had all the finalists standing at his side. He began by saying, NASA, with the help of our state school systems, has searched the nation for a teacher with the right stuff. He then noted that while thousands and thousands of teachers had the right stuff, only one would be selected that night. The winner, the teacher going into space, was Krista McAuliffe. Beaming, Krista accepted the vice president's hand and the congratulations of the other finalists as she blinked back tears. She couldn't believe it. As Bush read a little about her teaching background, he finished with something McAuliffe herself had said either during her initial application or her interview. Just as the pioneer travelers of the Conestoga wagon days kept personal journals, I, as a space traveler, would do the same. He then concluded, Well, I'm personally looking forward to reading that journal someday. Good luck, Krista. She then accepted the Teacher in Space trophy, a bronze statuette of a teacher and a student looking up at the stars. During the applause that followed, Bush leaned forward and whispered, asking if she would like to say anything. She surprised him by saying yes, then stepped to the podium. It's, it's not often that a teacher is at a loss for words. I know my students wouldn't think so. I've made nine wonderful friends over the last two weeks. And when that shuttle goes, they might be one body. <laughs> but there's going to be ten souls that I'm taking with me. Thank you. The news of Krista's selection spread across her hometown of Framingham, Massachusetts, and her current home of Concord, New Hampshire, like wildfire. Steve was pacing around his law office, shocked that she had won. Her nine-year-old son, Scott, quickly realized this meant a trip to Florida, which meant a trip to Disney World, and used that information to cheer up his five-year-old sister, Caroline, who was nervous about not seeing her mom during the additional months of training she would need to go through. Krista's parents gushed with pride during interviews with reporters. Though it was after midnight when her flight from Washington touched down, several hundred well-wishers descended on the small airport to welcome her home. A bagpiper played while a couple dressed as the Pigs in Space from TV's The Muppet Show, first mate Miss Piggy and Captain Link Hogthrob danced. Ed and Grace Corrigan hugged their daughter and handed her a dozen roses. Krista, feeling spent, had expected the usual half-hour drive from the airport. Instead, a lights and siren squad car led a caravan to Concord, with Steve and Krista's VW bus in the lead, followed by her parents' rusty Ford Mustang, friends, relatives, and Krista fans happily honking their horns. For the next two weeks, the McAuliffe's phone rang nonstop with everything from well-wishers to those wanting her to endorse their products 
and those wanting to buy the rights to her life story. On August 6, 1985, the city of Concord held a Krista McAuliffe Day parade that ended at the state capitol building. When the mayor of Concord hugged Krista during the celebration, he exclaimed, Whoa! I hugged an astronaut! Most of the country was immediately smitten with Krista's affable personality, but the McAuliffe's were taken aback by some high-level detractors. Citing the risks of spaceflight, her life insurance company canceled her policy, but Lloyds of London stepped in and earned some major PR points by giving her a free million-dollar policy. Then there was public criticism from John Glenn, the most iconic astronaut of all. It's been a while since we've heard from Glenn, but in 1985, he was a 65-year-old senator from Ohio who dismissed the teacher in space program as a publicity stunt. A Democrat, he accused Reagan of sending novices like Krista McAuliffe on cosmic carnival rides for political purposes. Glenn said space was no place for the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. Reagan's backers dismissed Glenn's attack as partisan politics, but Wally Shira had no political axes to grind. The only astronaut to fly in the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs, Shira was now chief of the astronaut office in Houston. He brought an engineer's view to the program. The shuttle is not a passenger plane yet, he said. In fact, we're still learning how to fly the thing. Detractors aside, Krista soon found herself whisked away to New York City for multiple TV interviews with all three networks and magazine spreads in Time, Newsweek, Better Homes and Gardens, and Ms., just to name a few. CNN named her one of its heroes of 1985, and People magazine was preparing a Krista McAuliffe cover to coincide with the shuttle launch. She was blown away that people saw her as a celebrity. Richard Mathia, one of the other nine finalists, said, Krista wasn't the best or the smartest teacher in America. What she had was a sort of genuineness that came across on TV. This was not a criticism, it's just how it was. Successive trips took Krista out to L.A. to appear on The Johnny Carson Show and back to New York to hobnob with movie stars and present an Emmy at the 1985 awards show. Her particular presentation ended up being a news Emmy to Ted Koppel. Her final week at home before reporting to Houston for astronaut training happened to be the first week of school at Concord High. As she welcomed everyone to the new school year, she apologized to the seniors that she would miss their final year, but promised to be back to speak at their graduation. Krista McAuliffe reported for duty at the Johnson Space Center on September 8, 1985. She arrived with Barbara Morgan, a second-grade teacher from Idaho, who would serve as her backup as teacher in space. 
While traveling to Houston, Krista had fretted about meeting the rest of the crew of STS-51 Lima, but that anxiety abated the moment she shook hands with Mission Commander Dick Scobie, a veteran astronaut who would lead her flight. Scobie seemed like the astronauts of McAuliffe's youth, wholesome and handsome, tall, blue-eyed, and ruggedly built. Scobie, in turn, introduced Krista to his wife, June, a professor at the University of Houston, who immediately embraced the newcomer. I'm terribly jealous, she confessed. I wish I could fly too, but I came along too late. McAuliffe wrote home about June. Mom, you would just love her. She understands where I'm coming from. She's a teacher. I can talk to her. Krista's main job on the mission would be conducting a pair of science lessons that PBS would beam to classrooms all over the country. Her main contribution would be reinforcing one of her own classroom slogans, Ordinary People Make History. With just four months between the start of her training and the launch, scheduled for January 1986, Krista told the NASA Public Affairs Office that she wanted to focus more on training and less on public appearances. She had mental tests to finish, treadmill tests to run, vision tests to pass, and those were all on top of the 12-inch or 30-centimeter training manual she had to study. Despite this request, she still ended up with a lot of outside demands on her time, which took away from her training opportunities. But it wasn't all bad. She did get to attend a state dinner at the White House with Steve as her plus one. For his part, Steve did miss having Krista around, but he was adapting to his new role as a single father fairly well. Before all of this, he usually didn't get home until after the kids were already in bed. Now, he helped them out the door in the mornings after making them breakfast and packing their lunches and had plenty of time to play with them in the evenings as he made dinner. By Steve's own account, he wasn't a great cook, but he was learning to use the newfangled microwave oven Krista bought right before she left. Every evening, before putting the kids to bed, they all eagerly awaited their nightly phone call from Mom. Steve was happy to be taking on many of the chores he admitted he probably should have been doing all along. When the couple arrived at the White House for the state dinner, they looked around the room in amazement, seeing several people they recognized, including actors Raquel Welsh, Sylvester Stallone and Michael J. Fox, singer Natalie Cole, and Roberto Cantera, president and CEO of Coca-Cola. What surprised them even more was learning that they would be seated next to President and Mrs. Reagan at the head table. Despite their divergent political views, McAuliffe and Reagan got along well. She asked him about his days as an actor, and he asked her how her training was going, and about the lessons she would teach from space. Later that night, Krista and Steve reflected on how surreal the dinner was especially when compared to the high school staff potlucks they were used to. Afterward, Krista joked with a friend that Steve had managed to spend a few extra minutes with Raquel Welsh, and Krista could understand why.
So just who would be joining McAuliffe in space? We already met Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Dick Scobie, who was picked to command the mission. This would be his second shuttle flight after serving as the pilot for one of Challenger's previous missions. Scobie's second-in-command would be Navy Commander Pilot Michael Smith. This veteran of the Vietnam War had flown dozens of bombing missions over North Vietnam, come home with 19 medals including the Distinguished Flying Cross, and was looking forward to making his first spaceflight. The crew also had three mission specialists. You've already met Judy Resnick. She could explain the aerodynamics of a Frisbee, while she was diving past you to catch one. Resnick was a licensed pilot, a classical pianist, and one of only 15 people up to that point to score a perfect 1600 on the SATs. There was also Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Ellison Onizuka, L to his friends, who, from his time as a boy in a rural Hawaiian village, dreamed of soaring through the heavens, and had made history earlier as the first Asian American and first Buddhist in space. L was the joker of the group who hosted luau's, made kalua pork the traditional way in an underground pit lined with rocks, wood, and leaves, and liked to razz Scobie when he dropped a burger in the coals on the barbecue. This guy can command the most complicated machine ever built, but a spatula? Look out below. The final mission specialist was Ronald McNair, NASA's second African-American and first Baha'i in space. McNair was an accomplished saxophonist who gigged around Houston. He had played a miniature sax his first time in orbit, and this trip, he planned to record an original tune that would be included on an upcoming album. When he wasn't making music or training for an upcoming space mission, McNair was a martial arts instructor who enjoyed smashing concrete blocks with his hands, as one does. Before we get to the final crew member joining McAuliffe, I need to correct another error from last week. I kind of referenced it earlier in the episode, and it was brought on by a misunderstanding on my part. You see, last week I said that McAuliffe was going to be the first citizen in space. I said this because this is how much of my research phrased it. I also saw it said that she would be the first non-astronaut in space. After continuing my research, including in some of the same sources that had said those two erroneous phrases, first citizen and first non-astronaut, I have to admit that I now believe both claims to be incorrect. Taking nothing away from her, Krista McAuliffe was not the first non-astronaut, nor the first civilian, public or private citizen, however you want to phrase it, in space. You may recall from the introduction of the shuttle program and the program's overarching mission in episode 75, that aside from the commander, pilot, and mission specialist, there was another crew position, the payload specialist. McAuliffe would be a payload specialist as would the final member of the crew. Sometimes payload specialists would be individuals with special expertise related to the satellite or other piece of equipment the shuttle was taking into space. But sometimes those designated as payload specialists were brought into space for other reasons. The teacher in space program was certainly one of those other reasons. 
payload specialists had to go through rigorous training, but it was nothing like the seven years many astronauts were now putting in before their first space flight, and it was expected that payload specialists would only fly on one particular mission. They would not become members of the astronaut office, and they would not enter the regular rotation for future missions. They were considered members of the Space Flight Participation Program. Prior to the STS-51 Lima mission, other citizens, other non-full-time astronauts, had gone into space. Among this group were two sitting politicians. Republican Senator Jake Garn from Utah spent several days aboard STS-51 Delta as the head of the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee that dealt with NASA. He saw his trip as a fact-finding mission. A few other politicians would follow Garn's footsteps over the life of the shuttle program. Fun fact, Senator Garn, himself an accomplished Navy pilot, who had more flight hours than anyone in the astronaut office at the time of his mission, and therefore a seemingly good candidate for a space flight, got so space sick during his time in orbit that a scale for space sickness was jokingly based on him, where one Garn is the highest level of sickness. Just two weeks before the Challenger flight, Democratic Representative Bill Nelson from Florida, whose district included Cape Canaveral and who chaired the House Subcommittee on Science and Space, spent six days in orbit on board Columbia. After serving in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1979 to 1991, and then the U.S. Senate from 2001 to 2019, Nelson was appointed the 14th Administrator of NASA by President Joe Biden in May 2021. He continues to lead the space agency as of this recording. And it wasn't just politicians going into space, aside from Garn and Nelson, 20 other civilian non-astronauts had flown in space as payload specialists before Krista. Most were contractors for NASA helping to develop this or that piece of technology, but one was Sultan bin Salman al-Sud, a member of the Saudi royal family, as a reward for his country's development of a multi-million dollar communications satellite. The other payload specialist for this flight was Greg Jarvis. Jarvis was an Air Force veteran. He served for five years in the late 60s and early 70s, but at the time of the STS-51 Lima mission, he worked for Hughes Aircraft Company, a major aerospace and defense contractor. Jarvis was initially scheduled to fly on an earlier mission, but lost his original seat to Senator Garn. In his book, The Burning Blue, author Kevin Cook writes that many of the mission specialists, Judy Resnick chief among them, thought that giving shuttle seats to politicians, princes, space industry people like Greg Jarvis, and media darlings like Krista McAuliffe was the very definition of selling out. In the words of future chief of the astronaut office and deputy director of flight operations Hoot Gibson, the mission specialists hated the payload specialists because they saw them, and in a way they were, taking a seat that our mission specialists could have or should have had. It was Resnick who said aloud what other astronauts were thinking. What are we going to do with these people? 
The answer to that question was babysit them, coach them, make them feel part of the team. It was all Resnick could do to not roll her eyes at the reporters, photographers, and NASA public affairs officials chasing Krista around. To Resnick, Krista was a walking publicity stunt, at least at first. As the weeks passed, she saw McAuliffe keep her wits about her while coping with a torrent of media attention, and she began to think differently about her new colleague. It couldn't be easy to be a spokesperson for the space program and America's three million teachers while bunking in a crummy apartment 2,000 miles from her husband and children. The more Resnick saw of Krista, the better she liked her, which was a good thing for McAuliffe because she was struggling to learn the science behind the lessons she was supposed to teach in space, and the man whose job it was to prepare her to teach, Army Colonel Bobby Mayfield, had all but decided Krista was a lost cause. But we'll have to wait until next week to see how she convinced the colonel she had the right stuff after all. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are pictures related to every episode on the website www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. You can help others learn about the podcast by leaving a 5-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death. For the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.